I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 20 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, April 16th, and I'm your host, Andy McCabe. Hey, Andy. It's me, Allison Gill. Once again, a very busy week for Jack mm-hmm. Smith. I think you referred to him as a subpoena factory <laughs> in a text message. Because, <laughs> you know, during the week, you and I text back and forth about some of the stories that are coming out. Uh, but there's all kinds of new subpoenas and testimony and some news about witness requests made by Fonnie Willis to the mm. Department of Justice last year. Uh, there's also been an expansion in an investigation into the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General Kufari over the missing Secret Service text messages from January 6th, among other things. And there's been a gang of eight briefing on all the classified documents. And I'm going to ask you about that because I know you've got some experience there. But first, Andrew, who is the winner of the contest naming the eight Trump aides and allies that the court, Jeb Boesberg, compelled to testify over arguments of executive privilege? Because remember, we were tired of naming them all. I know. It's a, it's a drag, right? There are so many people uh, in that list. So I have to tell you, it was a hard-fought battle. AG, we got over 150 submissions, which just <laughs> com- completely knocked me out. They were mostly very creative, although I have to say the most oversubmitted suggestion was the hateful eight. If you if you subtract out the hateful eight, I think we only got like four or five. Uh, no, <laughs> it wasn't that bad. But um, yeah, we got some great ones. I'll I'll give you some of my favorites: the Ocho frauds, which uh, or how about Scheme Team or. Steel Team 8, which I, I don't know. I just love that one. <laughs> Shout out to all my uh, San Diego uh, compadres. The Traitor Aiders, um, the Insurrectile Dysfunctionals. I'll let your mind go with that one. Uh, the Inchoate Coop 8. Um, or how about the Unappealables, which is actually a shout out to the eighth grade English class Rolo's writing room. I don't know what any of that means, but if I can do anything <laughs> to help an eighth grade English class, I'm doing it. Um, and then an, another another really good one, Only the Be Best. <laughs> I thought that was <laughs> quite funny, but none of those are the winner. I think you and I were really on the same page here with the one that we thought should win. And the winner is... Ocho Nostra. I mean, it is so great. Ocho Nostra. It's like both creepy and like subversive in the reference to the Cosa Nostra, of course. But yet it gives it kind of like a, I don't know, like a very kind of um, Cinco de Mayo vibe or something. I don't know what it is, but I, I really dig it. Ocho Nostra. Yeah. Or the Ocho, the that one uh, football player guy. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, very, very good. I think that submission came from Aaron H. And so we are going to refer to them. I mean, we'll probably pick, you know, pull all these at, at some point in, in tweets and things that we talk about. But uh, yep. yeah, La Ocha Nostra. Ocha Nostra uh, it is for now, and at least for this episode. And yes, we have to, um, I'll have to, I'll have to talk to our, uh, our audio folks and figure out how to connect with Aaron and, 
and record an outgoing uh, voicemail for her. I don't have any idea how to do those things, but we are going to work it out, Aaron, and we'll uh, we'll get this figured out. So, <laughs> so speaking of Ocho Nostra, uh, several of them have already testified for a second time before the grand jury, including our favorite Cooch, Ken Cuccinelli, <laughs> Stephen Miller, and John Ratcliffe. So what are your thoughts about that uh, that wrecking crew there? I guess Miller, probably the first one to mention, and of course, he's going to have information about the last-minute edits made to Trump's lip speech, um, including the addition of a line about how Mike Pence should do the right thing and throw the votes back to the states. Uh, Miller, always at the right hand of the president throughout his term. We know that he previously appeared in November and December but on April 4, Judge Boesberg ordered Miller to return to testify about things he had previously invoked executive privilege over. Yeah, and I assume those have to be those discussions with Donald about how to, you know, put those last minute Pence references in his speech, right? Because yeah. uh, we know that from uh, stuff we learned from the January 6th Select Committee, that those, like, I think it was uh, Representative Luria who presented that particular piece of information that the speech didn't in- include any mention of Mike Pence until the very last minute when those edits were made. And then there were some additional, I guess, riffs by Donald Trump while he was giving the speech that added some different uh, references to Pence and if he has the courage to do the right thing. Yep. And yep. I mean, it's, it's a very direct line of questioning, right? First you wrote the speech, it didn't have that reference, then you put that reference in. Why? What conversation did you have? Did Trump tell you to put that in? Was that entirely your idea? What did you mean by that when you put it in? What did Trump say about it? How did he react to the inclusion of that? So it's um, it really isn't. It's yet an. I, mean, I know we say this a lot, but it's yet another small piece that gives you some insight into what Trump was thinking. What was his actual intent uh, in that moment? Crafting that statement says something about what he actually wanted done. Uh, so it's a it's an interesting and important line of questioning, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. If uh, Jack Smith, you know, maybe goes after incitation of an insurrection or anything like that, uh, that could be evidence in that. It could also be evidence in the fraudulent elector scheme, the Pence pressure campaign, any of those eight prongs of cooing that <laughs> that went on <laughs> that went on uh, in you know with uh, with regard to Donald Trump. And then we have uh, former DNI. Uh, John Ratcliffe, Director of National Intelligence, he testified before a federal grand jury Thursday, and he is likely of interest to investigators because he personally told Trump and his allies that there was no evidence of foreign election interference or widespread fraud. And we know that when uh, Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn and Rudy Giuliani were pushing for executive orders to seize voting machines, that there was some discussion about, you know, we can't really do that unless there's foreign election interference. And that's when these Italian satellite conspiracy theories started coming to light. And Sidney Powell is bringing up Venezuela and Rudy Giuliani is talking about Venezuela, all these different uh, conspiracy theories about foreign election interference and, and how that plays into it. And Ratcliffe would be able to, you know, testify, assuming that he came in and said, I'm not going to testify to any discussions about I, that I had with uh, Donald Trump because of executive privilege, or I want to wait until that privilege question is is uh, settled before I, you know, I talk about that. Because a lot of these guys who, who have testified were, I think, willing to testify about their discussions with Donald Trump, but wanted to wait until the executive privilege question was 
resolved before they did that. I, I know Hirschman was one of those. He said, hey, if they ask me to testify and there's no executive privilege, I'm gonna. Uh, we know that um, the Pats, Pat Philbin and Pat Cipollone were uh, on that train. Mark Jacob, Engel, uh, you know, some of the guys that are, are Pence, um, close to Pence, Pence uh, general counsel and deputy general counsel. So we, I don't know if Ratcliffe was just being recalcitrant and being a dick or if he if he was just like really waiting for the chief judge overseeing yeah. grand juries to to say to give him the go ahead. You know, it's it's uh it's the go ahead, but it's also coverage, right? It's the same reason why you go out to talk to somebody. Typically this happens when you're doing an investigation, you have to go approach a company or an organization for records or some sort of testimony. They're happy to to uh, cooperate, but they want you to serve them a subpoena first. So then they can turn around and say, Oh, I had to do it. There was no choice here. This is the law I had to comply. Same thing is happening here with, I think, a lot of these witnesses. They went in and claimed executive privilege to, to avoid having to relate conversations and statements they had uh, with Trump. But, but half of them are not weren't really, you know, their heart wasn't in it. They wanted that piece to be litigated. And uh, if there was a determination that there's no privilege, then they were likely fine with going, going in and talking. And I think Radcliffe is probably one of those guys, because if you think about it, he was in his perch as DNI, Director of National Intelligence. He he has uh, access to all of the nation's foreign intelligence collection. The issue of election security was certainly a big deal leading into that uh, 2020 election. You'll recall he was giving briefings on it. Chris Ray, Chris Krebs, who was the head of CISO, were giving briefings uh, to Congress on these issues. So he saw all that stuff. He's also a guy that previously went along with a lot of Trump's crazy demands about um, declassifying intelligence from the Russia investigation, things that really, there was no reason to declassify that stuff other than uh, giving in to Trump's kind of demands supporting his, you know, his grievance theory of life, basically. Um, mm -hmm. So he went along with all that stuff previously, and then... At this moment, when asked, okay, okay, now give us the foreign intelligence that shows that Venezuela or Lord knows who else were messed with the election, that was the breaking point for him. And he allegedly told Trump and others that it's not there. I have no proof for you. I can't help you with this. So I would expect he's probably um, not reluctant to say that to the grand jury, but he just wanted the coverage of, of having the privilege issue resolved. Yeah, and same with Cuccinelli, right? He had testified previously in January, and he appeared again last week, part of the little Joe Nostra. Um, the House Select Committee reported Cuccinelli fielded a question from Trump and his top advisors about the executive branch seizing voting machines, right, to DHS. Yep. Now, Cuccinelli also messaged with Mark Meadows in November 2020 about Dominion voting machines. And uh, Trump also considered Cuccinelli to, uh, for special counsel uh, to mm. seek out election fraud on behalf of the White House after the election. He tried to uh, appoint Cuccinelli. He floated Sidney Powell uh, as being the uh, special counsel to investigate election fraud because I guess his $600,000 report from <laughs> the, <laughs> the research firm uh, didn't give him the... Didn't go the way the, they wanted. Yeah, yeah, it didn't go the way he wanted. So uh, he was trying to appoint a special counsel to do that. Uh, and again, weaponize the Department of Justice um, that in that way. 
So that leaves Meadows, McEntee, Johnny McEntee, Robert O'Brien, Dan Scavino, and Nick Luna left to testify as part of this, you know, the Ocho Nostra. As far as we know, they may have snuck in without the press seeing, but this seems to be going really quickly. I mean, that's, that's you know, they got Cuccinelli yeah. in the day that the appellate court wouldn't issue the stay blocking these guys from testifying under executive privilege. He came in that afternoon. Yeah, and that's the advantage to having um, a prosecutor like Jack Smith and his team. They are continuing to drop grand jury subpoenas on these people while the privilege issue is being litigated. And the advantage there is it forces the litigation to go forward uh, more quickly because you have an upcoming deadline of having that witness in front of the grand jury. And it it does seem that the judges, uh, now Bozberg, of course, are are helping to keep that schedule intact, to keep these witnesses getting in front of the grand jury. And that's going to help us get to the end of this process sooner rather than later. Yeah. So a stay was denied, but the underlying appeal continues. And these arguments are going to be heard in May, along with arguments about the Pence executive privilege case. That's going to be heard in May as well. But I didn't see any stay uh, even asked for or issued in the Pence case. Maybe they were just like, why well, we shouldn't even bother asking for a stay or there was a stay and it was denied and everything's under seal and we just don't know. That's and the possible. Pence team isn't talking. Yeah. Uh, because again, all of these are under seal. We're getting all of this information likely from the lawyers of the people who <laughs> are being forced <laughs> to testify so that they can get out ahead of it and spin it like, hey, I'm just doing my job and they forced me to come in or whatever. That's right. Uh, but, but all of that is set to be heard in May. Now, Andrew, what happens uh, if they get the testimony, you know, the executive privilege, the previously privileged testimony that's no longer privileged because a stay wasn't granted and they must testify to, you know, to these lines of questioning? What happens if in May the arguments are heard and then in June or July or something like that, somehow Trump wins this executive privilege battle? Do they just then not use that testimony in court, but they have it now? Like, are you allowed to just get it and then it gets clawed back after a potential litigation like this? Yeah, it's a really weird fact pattern because, quite frankly, I, I just I've never seen a situation like this before. Um, but what my my strong suspicion he's not going to win. He's not going to no. win. I'm just wondering if, <laughs> if like what happens in that situation. The mechanics of it. Yeah, sure. So the mechanics of it would be. Um, that 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 testimony would be declared inadmissible, so it would not be able to be used um, in a in a prosecution or a trial that might follow an indictment. However, the 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 sticky point here is the grand jurors have already heard it. So, and in that you know that famous um, uh, saying, you can't unring the bell. It's already had an impact on those grand jurors. Now they can be instructed by the chief judge to disregard that testimony because it's no longer admissible, it won't go any further, and they shouldn't factor it into their decision. But, geez, that's really hard to do, especially if you imagine having sat through hours of, let's say, for instance, Mike Pence testimony that's, like, remarkable and, and you know, riveting, and they— Although it's hard to imagine anybody riveted by Mike Pence <laughs> talking, but okay, maybe they sat there for hours on the edge of their seats and listened to everything he had to say, and then to have a judge come back to you a few weeks later and say, oh yeah, just forget about all that. Don't factor it into your decision when you're deciding whether or not to vote for an indictment. 
Um, That's right. It's not just what ends up being admissible in court for motions in limine. It's it's what they use to decide whether or not to indict. Right. Now, what if they indict before that decision is done? Because I can't figure out why Jack Smith would go ahead and get this testimony while there's still an appeal pending, like why he wouldn't wait for that resolution uh, or for, you know, for the appeal to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court refuses to hear it like they have before. It, it either says to me that he's in, he's on a time crunch or he's 100 percent certain that this isn't going to be a winner for, for Trump because it has not in the past. He is he won, for example, the Pat Philbin, Pat uh, Cipollone uh, executive privilege battle, and he's won other ones all the way up to the Supreme Court. So perhaps he's just like, I don't even care. Uh, I, I just don't. I just don't get why he's not waiting for the resolution. It's maybe a, uh, like I said, a time crunch. But because if he goes and he uses this testimony to indict Donald before the resolution of that appeal, and then the appeal comes, he like he, I, I don't think he's going to win. But he wins after the indictment comes down. Then there's there there can be pretrial challenges to the indictment. Yeah, it's it's messy, uh, and I think you're. I I tend to agree with your assessment that he is likely motivated by prior victories. He doesn't hold out. Nobody, I think, holds out much hope for the appeals of these uh, executive privilege decisions turning uh, things around. Um, and he is under a time crunch. He's trying to get this thing done. Um, well, you know, maybe he'll have all this information, and then when the arguments come out in May. And then there's a, a decision against Trump, and then it goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court refuses to hear it maybe in June. Then it's resolved. Then he can indict. Um, you know, maybe he's waiting to indict until it's, uh, you know, resolved. But getting the locking in the testimony now, uh, as opposed to waiting until later, I, I... Yeah, he's taking the chance that he may have to unwind it later if the rulings don't go his way. But that's a low likelihood event. Yeah. And because the appellate courts are not issuing stays of the lower court's order, the witnesses don't have the option of going in front of the grand jury and saying, nope, I appealed and I still expect that executive privilege is going to hold and I and I don't have to answer these questions. They have to answer because they are bound by the lower court's ruling that has not been stayed. So yeah. he'll get the testimony. He may be creating a problem for himself later uh, if the rulings, if the appeals don't go his way, but it's probably a pretty safe bet to move forward. Yeah, they haven't gone Trump's way yet. I mean, Jack Smith is batting a thousand, and there's been a few of these already. So, yep. and, and other news too: former, uh, another former director of national intelligence under Trump, Rick Grinnell, testified this past Thursday, but this time in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. So we just have a revolving door in two different grand juries <laughs> going in and out of these of this testimony. The subpoena factory. I'm telling you, it's the, the subpoena factory. The comment out of that article I sent to you was indicated they have two separate grand juries meeting. I think twice a week each in D.C. every week, which is a phenomenal amount of grand jury time. That is a lot mm. of grand jury time, and you know, with that kind of that number of prosecutors in front of grand juries that often, you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of witnesses through the door, and that's what we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Grinnell. Um, is also part of this declassification of the Russia documents, right? He was he he embarked upon yep. an effort to declassify documents that were of interest to Trump because Trump believed they could delegitimize the Russia investigation. 
Grinnell remained in Trump's orbit even after the former president left office and has been seen at Mar-a-Lago as recently as last week, Grinnell. Uh, He also commented publicly about Trump's retention of classified documents and the former president's still unproven claims that the materials have been declassified. Uh, The same grand jury investigating the documents kept at Mar-a-Lago has also heard testimony from Trump's former national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, who is also being investigated in the other grand jury for January 6th stuff. But I think what's interesting here is that we're going to see a similar situation to uh, some other people who have testified and what they say to the public, like Kosh Patel, for example, or um, have have told the public on Fox News that, you know, Trump absolutely called for the National Guard multiple times on January 6th. But then in testimony under oath, they said, nope, he never, ever called for it. I think we're going to see another situation where what Grinnell has said to the public uh, differs wildly from what he testifies to under oath regarding the declassification of this material. But it could, you know, it could also yeah. uh, 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 reveal to Jack Smith what Donald Trump thought might be declassified or whether he knew that these items were not declassified or whether he was told, don't take them. They're not officially declassified yet. Stuff like that. Sure. So we'll see how yeah. that turns out. I think that's possible. I think it's also possible that this is like a bit of a parrying move, right? In a fight, you would... You expect a blow to come, you see it heading your way, and you deflect it before it gets there. So that's kind of how I think about the Rick Grinnell testimony. I think it's possible that the prosecutors think that one of Trump's possible defenses in the document case might be, oh, no, I thought Rick Grinnell you know, declassified this stuff for me. So they're they're getting to the source first. They're going to put him in there and find out exactly what he declassified and what he didn't and when he was in a position to do so and when he wasn't. So they have all that stuff in the tank uh, in the event he, Trump is indicted and he presents this uh, or a similar defense, point, essentially pointing the finger at Rick Grinnell at trial. Um, the prosecutors will have the information they need locked down, sworn under oath uh, in a way that makes it uh, very effective to shoot that defense down at trial. Yeah, very good point. Because, you know, Trump's defense, I mean, hey, he told me they were declassified. That's, right. That's why I took them. That's exactly right. And then you right. get Grinnell up with perhaps some emails and statements and notes where he specifically said that certain things were not declassified, <laughs> but they were taken anyway. Because uh, we know also Mark Meadows wrote a memo at the very end of, of Trump's uh, tenure, like uh, third week of January, second week of January 2021, telling uh, the that some of, you know, telling Trump that a lot of these documents haven't been declassified. They haven't gone through. There's concerns over at uh, FBI and DOJ yep. about declassifying these certain documents. And and then he went ran and grabbed a bunch of them and gave them back to the DOJ. So, I mean, there's a lot going on. there, right. And uh, that's a part of the documents case that I think goes a little bit uh off the radar and uh, we'll keep we'll keep you posted on it and uh, Andy we have a really big update on that sleeper case that you talked about back in December that yes. Jack Smith is looking into wire fraud and Randall Eliason wrote that piece saying you know hey if it's if it's white collar it's gonna be wire fraud that's right um, and so we've got some new stuff about Jack Smith looking into the wire fraud and the Trump packs we'll have more on that after this quick break everybody stick around Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, 
comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, so back in December, there was some reporting that you and I discussed about subpoenas that were sent out requesting information on Trump's super PACs. So let's take a little trip down memory lane here, AG. So you'll recall that uh, it was first reported by ABC in September of last year. And ABC said uh, the subpoenas, which were sent to several individuals in recent weeks, are specifically seeking to understand the timeline of Save America's formation, the organization's fundraising activities, and how the money is both received and spent by the Trump-aligned PAC. Okay, so that's going all the way back to September, yeah. meaning the, you know, and that those subpoenas went out in August. I just want to, you know, point out that that's before Jack Smith got here. That's right. And and let's remember, that was kind of a, a, a new subtext, right? It was not something that featured prominently in the work of the January 6th committee, at least not in the hearings that we that we all watched on TV, this kind of direct investigative action or investigative action directed at the PACs. All right. Yeah, so then, and that could have come out from the January 6th Select Committee because, you know, they did call it the big fraud. They did. Uh, the big the big grift. Um, uh, Rep. Zoe Lofgren did. And and it was um, in July, uh, actually, after um, a good number of those hearings had taken place that Jack or that Merrick Garland, excuse me, appointed J.P. Cooney uh, to be in charge of the financial part of the investigation of Trump's super PAC. So this is going back eight or nine months now. Yes, that's right. So then in December, after Garland appointed Jack Smith, Caitlin Polans at CNN reported the following. She said, in recent months, however, the financial investigation has sought information about Trump's post-election Save America PAC 
and other funding of people who assisted Trump, according to subpoenas viewed by CNN. The financial investigation picked up steam as DOJ investigators enlisted cooperators months after the 2021 riot. Mm-hmm. So this now has been going on since <laughs> since right after the That's riot right. happened. That's because right. Because we remember they sent out a bunch of subpoenas soon after Merrick Garland got there asking for information about fundraising and, and the money that supported the rally on the ellipse on January 6th, right? That's right. That's right. So the, so then in January, um, Dossie at the Washington Post reported an expansion of the probe into Trump's election fraud fundraising. And I quote, one person with knowledge of the prosecutor's inquiries said they appeared to be exploring whether people who approved the ads saying the election was stolen separately acknowledged their fundraising pitches were based on lies. Prosecutors also sought information about a, quote, election defense fund cited in some fundraising emails that asked for donor money to challenge the election and any documents about whether such a fund existed or whether there are plans for such a fund. Mm, yeah, now I, and I have a prediction here because I know the January 6th committee had subpoenaed a company called Salesforce. And Salesforce was responsible for putting all the ads together and the fundraising emails and text messages that were sent out by the Trump organization and the Trump campaign to, to fraudulently raise money off of these election lies. And people at Salesforce, uh, like you were talking about in the first segment, got, you know, said, hey, just subpoena us for this stuff. We're That's happy right. to hand it over. But then Trump came in and sued to block it and held it up in the courts with his, you know, delay magic wand. And so eventually um, the the select committee disbanded and they had to cancel that subpoena for Salesforce and they just dropped it because they weren't going to get that information. I am willing to bet you all the beans that Jack Smith or the Department of Justice before Jack Smith got there did not have a hard time getting the documents and information from Salesforce. <laughs> so, not at all. Th- those people are like, hey, we do not want to be in the middle of this thing. Here no. you go. Here's the documents. Thank you very much. So, yeah. And they, and Jack Smith's got the power, you know, overseeing the, the D.C. grand jury that he's running, as, as would have the DOJ before Jack Smith got there. So I wouldn't be surprised if we hear sometime in the next week or two that uh, Department of Justice has the records from Salesforce uh, with regards to Trump's PAC and the, the fraudulent fundraising. Yeah. But uh, here's what's cool. Now we have more subpoenas related to this investigation. Subpoena. All right. So again, from Dossie at the Washington Post, just this past week on April 12th, quote, the news subpoenas received since the beginning of March, which have not been previously reported, show the breadth of Smith's investigation. The subpoenas seek more information and specific types of communications so that prosecutors want to compare what Trump allies and advisors were telling one another privately about voter fraud claims with what they were saying publicly in appeals that generated more than $200 million in donations from conservatives. So that's really, really big news. And and can you explain just for a second why some people might be subpoenaed again or what, like if subpoenas went out in August and then December and then January and then March, why are there so many rounds of subpoenas? Does it have to do with getting more leads and information at each level that you question folks? Yeah. You know, you can think of the first round of subpoenas like that's throwing the net out and to see what kind of fish fall into it. 
you get the results from that uh, from that first inquiry back, and that leads you. You know, it may un- it may uncover for you things like, um, you know, you can imagine like bank account numbers or um, identify people who are involved in particular communications. Well, that gives you a whole new round of targets that you want to subpoena in your next round of subpoenas. So this is the sort of um, iterative process that happens when you are conducting a grand jury investigation. You are constantly asking for information and then analyzing that information to develop new leads, new targets, new directions. And so I should- much like with the documents, they subpoenaed them. They got the well. First, they got the boxes. Noticed classified stuff was missing. Then they'd send out a subpoena. Then they go down. Then they get more. They develop more information that there was additional documents. So they get um, a, a search warrant uh, yeah. signed off by a judge, and they go down and get that. And then they send out subpoenas to twenty-seven different aides and yeah. valets, and and you just keep kind of. And then and then finally, you get to Corcoran. You very yeah, crime exactly. You very rarely ever open an investigation, you know, knowing or having a, a strong idea of who was who was involved, who's responsible for the crime or whatever you're you're looking into, and then you go out and make one request and get the piece of evidence to convict that person, and then it's all done. That's like TV, you know, it happens mm-hmm. in the over the course of an hour. In reality, these big investigations, particularly white collar investigations, that are by definition very document intensive communication, like historical communication intensive. So emails, text messages, uh, things like that. It takes time to to get the legal process, to serve the legal process, to wait for those entities to either pull the uh, information together and get it to you, or maybe fight you in court over it, over privilege or other other things. You get it back and then it all has to be analyzed. You know, you're kind of buried in reams and reams of data. You got to sort through it and figure out where to go next. So it's definitely a process. But I should also say, this is the meat and potatoes of DOJ white-collar investigations. So many of these investigations come back to your basic fraud charges. Wire fraud, mail fraud, securities fraud. They are tried and true. Uh, Prosecutors they come up as prosecutors. They're trained and they and they, you know, cut their teeth on these fraud cases for years and years and years. So they have a great sense of what sort of evidence you need to make these cases stick. They're not that complicated. And you have these like tangible things uh, to put in front of jurors in a trial, like yeah. phone records, like emails, like bank records, uh, or a witness that's gonna um, you know, kind of put context and interpretation around those things. So it's much easier to prove a fraud case than it is to prove a case for, you know, sedition or seditious conspiracy. Or inciting an insurrection. Exactly. Or, yeah. And I, I do want to mention that the fraud statute carries with it a 20-year max sentence, a 30-year max sentence if it negatively impacts a financial institution. That's right. So it's not just a throwaway case, you know, it's, it's a, they're significant. Charges. Very significant. Significant charges. It's what Bannon was charged with in his We Build the Wall scheme, where he defrauded donors saying he would raise money to build his own private wall on the Mexico border and then used it to, I don't know, fix up Guo Wangwei's yacht or whatever the yeah. hell, you know, pay it, his mortgage and stuff like that. So that's defrauding donors. When you tell a group of people that you are fundraising for one thing and then you spend the money on other things or that that one thing that you're raising money off of is a lie. 
like the big lie. That's right. And you can prove it and then the intent, then you you end up with these um like you said, the bread and butter wire fraud charges. Now, of course, Bannon was pardoned by Trump. Yeah, so there there you go. But so like in 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 this case, so just in terms of the the questions around the legal defense fund, if you say if you raise money off of the claim that like, hey, contribute money to my legal defense fund, you actually have to have a legal defense fund. And if you have one, and I know this AG because I <laughs> used to have one, it's not just like, oh, I cooked it up in the back of my mind. Give me some money. I'll throw it in my bank account and call that, you know, stuff I'm going to use for the Lord's. No, you actually have to set it up. It's almost kind of like you incorporate it in a way. I don't know what the correct legal term is for that, but you set it up. It's on file in the state where you live or where the entity is is based. You have to file tax returns for the for the defense fund. So that's why they're asking all these questions. If they can prove that none of that stuff ever happened with this, uh, with the with the PACS legal defense fund, um, yeah, or the election fraud, the election fund, fraud, which didn't right. exist. Exactly. If they haven't taken any of those steps to actually, you know, file the right paperwork, to file, you know, tax returns at the end of the year, to declare the money that they've that they've brought in, then the thing didn't really exist. Which makes all of the fundraising emails a complete fraud. Yeah, and and that leads us right into our next story from Caitlin Polance at CNN, who's just, by the way, excellent reporting. I recommend you follow her. Uh, and this is reported on Friday, April 14th, quote, federal prosecutors investigating former President Trump's handling of classified documents, this is the documents case, are pressing multiple witnesses for details about their attorneys, including whether any of them have attempted to influence testimony in order to protect the former president. Many of those lawyers have been paid out of the money raised on fraudulent elector <laughs> lies. And by the end of 2022, Save America PAC had paid $16 million for lawyers. And this is clearly not a legal defense fund um, who defend Trump himself and people who work for him in the ongoing probes and in response to other legal issues. And of course, several of Trump's closest aides who are now witnesses remain on his payroll and also receive hefty consulting fees through the Save America PAC. Now, again, it's not illegal to have your defense paid for by a third party. That's right. Um, but if it's being used nefariously or corruptly to suborn perjury or to coerce witnesses, that's when you start running into trouble. It's a little harder to prove than just straightforward wired fraud, like you're just, you know, you're raising money off of uh, fraudulent stuff. But that Jack Smith is looking into this, and this this has to do with the January 6th committee and perhaps obstructing their work. It has to do with the documents case. It has to do with the PAC, the Save America PAC case. It has to do with Sidney Powell and her inv- the investigation into her PAC um, and has to do with the January 6th investigation by Jack Smith. This touches every single investigation. And now we know that Jack Smith and probably is part of his obstruction investigation is looking into where this money went and if it paid for these attorneys and if that is in fact illegal or just normal course of events. Yeah, it's be a very tough thing to prove. Um, you'd basically have to have evidence that the attorney. Let's say in this in this uh, in this example, Trump is the third party. So let's say you have a, a witness uh, who's subpoenaed to the grand jury and Trump decides to pay for that witness's attorney. So that attorney, you'd have to prove, is actually not 
not really genuinely representing the witness in the, in the best interest of the witness. They're actually representing the witness in an effort to control them or manipulate their testimony for the benefit of the person who's paying the bill, which in this, in this uh, hypothetical is Donald Trump. Those are very kind of complicated proof issues there, and all of many of which are bound up in attorney-client privilege between the attorney and the person they're representing, either for good or for ill. So hard, hard to see how like a specific charge comes out of that, but it could also spell uh, headaches for the attorneys involved. It could, it's the sort of thing that could lead to sanctions and uh, complaints with bar associations. Yeah. And even if you don't have enough to uh, charge a crime, right, like of suborning perjury or, or coercion or obstruction, like let's just take the Passantino Hutchinson uh, situation that we know Passantino yep. was being paid. Hutchinson testified or said that Passantino told her to say she didn't recall certain facts when she actually did. He says that didn't happen and there's no documentary communication proving that. It's going to be probably not something that you can charge a crime for. But it is certainly something that you can put in the body of a report that shows totality of evidence of obstruction, uh, yeah. you know, of a pattern of behavior of interference and obstruction if you're looking to charge him for obstruction of justice uh, on some other very provable thing. Uh, you know, it just kind of goes to it, like, just like it did in the Mueller report with the pardons he dangled for Cohen. And, the, right. you know, he didn't have, he couldn't. Um, indict the sitting president. And in some cases, he did have enough to charge obstruction uh, per the way that he laid it out in volume two. But there were other things that didn't meet all three elements of obstruction of justice that had to do with the pressure that he put on certain witnesses. But it was included to show a pattern of behavior. That's right. That's right. Or, you know, even if you had, if you could show that the payments to the attorneys for these witnesses actually came out of this sham legal defense fund, um, that could that that could substantiate your claim that oh the legal defense fund is actually a fraud because it wasn't they weren't people's money uh, wasn't actually being used to you know uh, overturn the the election or something like that yeah for sure all right we got a, a couple more pieces of news um, we'll hit in a in a, a lightning round style as soon as we take another quick break and then we'll also answer a listener questions so everybody stick around we'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, 
show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right. Welcome back. So a couple of quick things. First of all, we had a gang of eight briefing. Congressional leaders known as the gang of eight, right? That's the leaders of the Senate and the House and then the leader, the chair, co-chair of the intelligence committees in both houses or both, you know, um, in the Senate and the House. Eight of them. So four Democrats, four Republicans uh, have begun receiving access to classified documents found in the possession of the former guy, Trump, uh, President Biden and former Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, and Andy, normally the DOJ wouldn't share documents that are part of an ongoing criminal investigation with Congress. Why are they doing so now? Does this signal that maybe Jack has the testimony locked in that he needs locked in and is fine with sharing these documents now with, with the Gang of Eight? You know, I can't imagine that Jack is very comfortable with this. Uh, even if he's got his the lion's share of his testimony locked in, you don't want your evidence, the 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 actual documents you're going to use as evidence in a in a potential prosecution. You don't want that floating around up on Capitol Hill, and it also does put you in this awkward position of sharing something, uh, evidence in a criminal investigation, likely criminal prosecution with Congress. That's like a that's like a line in the sand that DOJ never wants to go over. So that's all on one side of the equation. The problem is there's a sec there's another side to that equation, and that is that the intelligence committees specifically have an obligation to conduct oversight and particularly oversight of matters that are considered intelligence failures. And the loss of classified material, although we seem to be talking about that a lot <laughs> these days, hmm. the loss of classified material or the spillage, as we like to say, of classified outside of uh, approved um, places and containers is qualifies as that sort of uh, intelligence failure. So Congress has a legitimate oversight uh, role here, and that's what they're using to demand access to the documents. Now, but couldn't Jack Smith have written a letter like uh, like Alvin Bragg wrote to Jim Jordan saying, look, we have, these documents are part of an ongoing criminal investigation. You can't see them yet. He could, but here's here's where they have an opening. In addition to the criminal investigation, you also have the intelligence community conducting a damage assessment. The so risk assessment. The yeah. risk assessment, right. So they're, they've already looked at all the documents and determined like to make decisions about which sources and methods now need to be protected. Maybe accesses that we had in foreign places need to be shut down. Maybe sources need to be moved. That's all very real and important work that has to get done and that's right in the lane of Intel stuff that Congress has oversight over. So my guess is that I would have hoped that the only thing Congress would have seen were summaries of the documents uh, to kind of address this issue of 
what sort of danger have does does this spill present to you know classified sources and methods? It's likely Congress wasn't satisfied with that and are demanding looking at some of the exact documents. So if they're getting them from, let's say, the DNI or from uh, Intel community representatives rather than the prosecutors who are investigating the case, they can kind of fig leaf it a little bit and say, well, oh, we're not asking for evidence from the prosecutors. We're asking for, for, for intelligence from the intelligence community. Essentially, it's the same material. So there are, mm. so there's Jeopardy there, but... Um, yeah, but Jack Smith fought tooth and nail the Eileen Cannon special master classified documents thing to keep those documents out of the hands of even the special master uh, at, at, with the argument that, yes, we're doing a risk assessment, but these are inextricably linked to a criminal probe. They cannot be pulled apart. It's odd to me because they say that the, that the gang of eight saw actual documents, perhaps and there's things that we don't know. Maybe the Goldilocks documents that are going to be used in the case were not shown. I, you know, I honestly don't know. But it seems like, uh, it, from the reporting at least, that all the classified documents they have were shown to the Gang of Eight, like the actual docs. I don't it's know. hard. It's hard to say how they arrived at that. If that's in fact what happened. Um, in my own personal experience. These things, sometimes you you will lash yourself to the mast and go down with this ship fighting, yelling and screaming at the AG and the DAG and everybody else saying, no, 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 don't do it. You can't do it. You're going to ruin my case. But they are subjected to political pressures and political realities. And sometimes they'll split the baby and do something that they wouldn't normally do. Gotcha. This feels like one of those moments um, now, and I'm not trying to defend it, but the Gang of Eight is typically the smallest, most discreet group that you can convene up on the hill. So when you have something like super creepy, sensitive, that you feel like you absolutely have to notify Congress about, and but you want to do it in the, in the most secure way, the way least uh, susceptible to leakage and stuff like that, you just request a Gang of Eight briefing. So that's obviously what they did here. Um, and I think there's a good chance that you won't hear things leaking out of that briefing. But look, it's Congress. You never know. Well, I, I have to imagine Kevin McCarthy would run back to Donald and let him know what they've got. But I mean, again, like you said, split the baby. And we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll, I think we'll probably know more as time goes on. Yep. Uh, what they got to peek at. Uh, also, Kufari, who I've been like hammering on, he's the inspector general at the DHS. Trump appointee. He's suing the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. So if you ever wonder, like, if you've got a, if you've got a, a nefarious inspector general, what is the check on that guy? And the answer is the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. It's a, it's a panel of inspectors general that investigate others, uh, other inspectors general. Well, Kufari is suing them. And the lawsuit revealed that on Monday, investigators demanded records related to the deleted text messages mm -hmm. of the office of inspector general kufari his deleted text messages right now kufari was investigating the disappearance of the secret service text messages and he waited until the day after 18 months had passed after january 6th to talk uh, to tell congress that text messages were missing and i find that that's a very interesting period of time because there are some records retention rules in the department, in the U.S. Secret Service Department, in that agency or DHS that say, after 18 months, you can delete anything. We don't keep records after 18 months. 
And so that's when he came to Congress and said, we can't find any of these text messages. It just happened to be. And then they were like, oh, well, why did you delete them? Oh, well, we kept them for 18 months. Um, So this this investigation has paralyzed the inspector general's office, alienated Kufari from the watchdog community, uh, and led to calls for Biden to fire him. Now, the lawsuit, uh, an unusual broadside against the federal watchdog community by one of its own, accuses the panel, that that SIGI council of investigators, uh, of, of exceeding its authority and of illegal interference in the operations of one of the government's largest oversight offices. This sounds like something Trump would say. Uh, but the this panel said, quote, he's Kufari challenged the structure of a body statutorily created by Congress. Um, we're appalled and exhausted by him. They said. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Appalled, not just appalled, appalled and exhausted. That is so visual. And, you know, it, the, the, he everything about him is just so suspicious and weird. Um, and now you have. A guy who is an IG whose job is to conduct oversight, and he's suing the other IGs for conducting oversight. Mm. I mean, it's just how is mm-hmm. he still in his job? I don't. I don't understand it. Um, I'm the only thing I can guess is maybe Biden is just waiting. Like, but you guys figure this out. Have Sigi investigate. Um, I'm going to stay out of it. And also, if you still work for the department, it's easier to get your testimony. Um, if, yeah. if if that comes down to that, or it's easier for the inspectors general to question you because inspectors general generally can only question people who still work uh for the for the department although right. uh Merrick Garland allowed for former Department of Justice employees to be questioned by the inspector general at DOJ right after uh January 6th so i don't know we'll see but that that investigation is is now broadening uh and then finally um some interesting insight into the Fani Willis investigation, something I didn't know. I don't know if this has been previously reported, but aides to Fonnie Willis filed what are known as TUI requests. That's named after a a 1951 Supreme Court case. And she filed those requests for Donahue and Clark, two former DOJ Trump people. And under that rule, local prosecutors are required, they're required to get authorization from the DOJ to question current or former employees. But the requests were ultimately uh, rejected. And I'm wondering if DOJ was like, they, they didn't have any way to stop Fonnie Willis from bringing in Meadows and, and Rudy and, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham, but they do have that, you know, ability to stop former DOJ employees. Yeah. Department employees. So the basic policy at DOJ, um, is, and I'll, I'll quote it here, no present or former employee of the Department of Justice may testify or produce departmental records in response to subpoenas or demands of courts or other authorities issued in any state or federal proceeding without obtaining prior approval by an appropriate department official. So so that's what opens the door for what you've referred to as the TUI request. And here, it's not crazy to think that Fonnie Willis would love to get Donahue and Clark to in front of the grand jury, find out what they'd say and potentially use their testimony in a possible indictment of, you know, Donald Trump or Rudy or anybody else that's involved in the, uh, in the Georgia investigation. So she files the request to get their testimony and DOJ says, no, thank you very much. You cannot have them as witnesses. Also not, um, 
unreasonable under the circumstances because DOJ, in the form of Jack Smith, he wants those witnesses first. He doesn't want those guys testifying under oath anywhere except for him. Uh, so he can control the questioning and make sure that that grand jury testimony in Georgia or anywhere else isn't creating problems that he would then have to deal with if if he uses them in, as witnesses in his potential proceeding um, on the Trump investigations. Could uh, the Department of Justice, could Jack Smith's special counsel office have called Fonnie Willis and asked her to stand down, much like Berman at the Southern District of New York called the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and asked them to stand down? Is that a normal uh, request? Uh, is, is that why Fonnie Willis's imminent uh, um, indictments have, have not happened for now three months? You know, I, I doubt it. I don't think they would do that, um, especially with the way this issue of, and it's not even really a real thing, but the question of prosecutorial coordination, you know, the coordinating seeking indictments in different jurisdictions has come up largely out of the the Trump New York indictment. Mm -hmm. um, that's become such a controversial and discussed thing. I would expect that Jack Smith doesn't want to get anywhere near that. He doesn't want to be involved in that at all. That could just make things look um, suspicious later. And he doesn't have to do it because by policy, DOJ can stop Fannie Willis from reaching any of the witnesses that he really relies on, any of these current or former employees. And the way to, to block her officially without getting involved in anything that could be accused later of being suspicious is just to rely on the policy. She makes the request. They turn it down. Thanks very much. See you next time. Yeah, but he can only do that for former DOJ employees, which he, which he did, or which Garland did, actually, because this was before Jack Smith came on board. Yeah, so he can't do anything about non-DOJ employees, but he'll he'll shut her down as much as he can, I think, on those folks. I, I think that kind of shows that he's not doing any coordination with Fonnie Willis. Otherwise, we wouldn't have seen, you know, her be able to, uh, you know, question Mark Meadows and question Rudy Giuliani and other witnesses that the DOJ probably didn't want anybody else to go testify anywhere yep. else with. And then he also has to worry about the January 6th testimony that a lot of these folks gave and whether the, all that testimony matches up. So That's right. All right, we got a couple minutes left. Do we have a listener question? We do. We have a question this week from Kim Z. And Kim writes, regarding Pence's testimony, will the special counsel have to revisit the question of immunity when it comes to the fake electors? That was the plot that his role on the dais involved. How will the appellate division affect that? How will, I'm sorry, how will the appellate decision affect that case? So here's how I think about that, Kim, and, and AG, tell me if you see it differently. I don't think that it will be much of an issue because the questions that Jack Smith wants to ask um, Mike Pence are really more generated or, or geared towards the things that happened in the lead up to January 6th, like ending probably on the morning of January 6th with that infamous, uh, you know, kind of aggressive phone call between Trump and Pence. And I would expect that he'll probably stay away from, you know, all the, all the bad stuff, all the things that could possibly be evidence of criminal intent and, and, and crimes even regarding the fake electors, that stuff all happened in conversations leading up to Pence's arrival at the Senate and his role in certifying mm -hmm. the election. So the actual mechanics of what was he thinking when he was certifying the votes or what kind of conversations was he having with people um, on the Senate floor that day, 
that stuff is probably going to fall within the specter of, um, you know, privilege that he's he's now created with this uh, wacky thing. Um, but it's it's not the meat, really, of what Jack Smith is going to be looking for. No, and even if a court determines that uh, the discussions Pence had with Trump about what he was going to do or what he wanted him to do as president of the Senate would not be protected by uh, speech or debate clause privilege because Judge Boasberg determined that anything that was discussed, even if it has to do with him being a president of the Senate or his role that day, anything that was discussed that is a crime or that could be in the furtherance of a crime is not protected by the speech or debate. Just like uh, uh, Judge um, Beryl Howell decided in the Scott Perry case, like, Sure, right. at your stuff as a as a member of Congress, but any discussions you had with the executive branch about overthrowing the government aren't protected by speech or debate, you know, because yeah. it's supposed to protect Congress from the large hand of the executive branch coming right. in. You can't coordinate and uh, and conspire with that if and, and expect to be covered by that privilege. So Jack Smith's going to get the answers to every question he wants answered. That's right, and and if if Trump or Pence tries to avoid answering a question by making a claim of Fifth Amendment privilege, which is different from the speech and debate clause privilege, that's really the only circumstances where immunity comes in. Um, and, you know, it, it, it would it's likely, I, I can't imagine that happening because he doesn't really have any sort of a credible claim of, um, of crim criminal liability under the matters that he's being questioned about. But even if he did claim the fifth, as we discussed last week, you know, the prosecutors would, would very quickly immunize him uh, and then he'd be compelled to answer the question. So I don't, yeah, they're I don't not see after Pence. problem either. Yeah, they're not going after Pence on any of this. All right, cool. Thank you so much for that question. Very good question. If you have questions, you can send them to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line. Uh, wow, what a week of news. And I imagine it's only going to get busier as right. time goes on. So. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Jack. We look forward to talking to you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom 
how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.